0: into the Theology Pit. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with the bottomless pit, because you know what they say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. But here, here at The Theology Pit, that's not going to happen. Well... We are, in my opinion, coming towards the end of our study here uh, of salvation. We This is part 17, and it's really focused on the application of the atonement and how Christians over time have viewed Christ's atonement being applied to us. And we've gone through a lot of different uh, ideas. We've talked about a lot of different um, branches of Christianity, a lot of different denominations, some broadly some specifically now when i last left off in the last few pits we've been focusing on i guess roughly the 15th century a lot of stuff was going on at that point we've been talking about the lutherans and we talked about the calvinists and we were getting into some of uh, what Z- uh, zwingli taught or what zwingli and there's one group That I left out. Now, I know I've said in the past before that we are going to get to the Arminians and their response to the Calvinists. But looking over my history books and looking over my notes, I have to talk about the Anabaptists. We have to bring them up because the the ideas that came out of the Anabaptist movement at the same time, all this other stuff was going on. um, They influenced... A lot of churches, they influenced, uh, they still influence churches today. And I think that it's important to kind of see where they come from, uh, who they were, what they were doing, and, you know, kind of what was their main point. I mean, when we talked about Luther, we could see where his main point was with justification by faith alone, uh, with uh, Zwingli we could see where you know his main point was coming from that okay we have to get a little bit further away from rome than before let's let's stay more as you know the universities wanted as the humanists wanted and the scholastics wanted in more of a congregational type of um more more of a council type of church government and unity, and then uh, where John Calvin came from and Calvinism and all the uh, uh, theological developments that he did and the discipline and his structuring and everything like that. But we have to focus now on the Anabaptists. All right, so, um, turn my microphone down a little bit because I feel like I'm... Overmodulating uh, somewhat, and I want to get a little bit closer, too. Okay, so I know that I said some inflammatory things in the last Theology Pit about, you know, my thinking that the Westminster Confession seems like it was put together by, you know, a bunch of first-year freshmen in college because of how disjointed it is. When I say that, I do not mean to imply, and if you've inferred this, then I'm sorry, but I did not mean to imply that anybody within a Calvinist tradition is, well, I don't even want to say sophomore because I didn't even go as far as sophomore, but that they are uneducated in any way. Um, The people who put together the Westminster Confession, those were the ones that I suppose I was insulting. Not the present day. I, of course, go to a Presbyterian church. The Westminster Confession is what our church is uh, you know, built off of. It's what we ascribe to. It's what we um, use. It's the it's summary. But before I joined a Presbyterian church, I really went over the Westminster Confession to figure out if I wanted to join this particular denomination. I took great care. It, I, it took quite a while before I joined, oh, excuse me, I'm yawning here. Um, and I, I got a copy of the Westminster Confession uh, from the pastor. And we met, I want to say, I think once a week, maybe for like three months, something like that. And he brought his, West, his copy of his Westminster Confession that he had from when he was in seminary. And what he was asked to do in seminary was to go over the confession. They went through, you know, section by section and pretty much rip it apart. Tear it apart. Find the things that were wrong with it that they thought were wrong with it and and why. His notes and my notes were very similar. The places that I had problems, he had problems as well. Now, when we look at the Anabaptists, I'm going to be critical. I, I really am. I'm, I'm going to prepare you for this theology pit early here, because normally I'm very, very ironic. And in this, I feel that I'm going to be polemic. I'm going to be warlike. I want to give them their fair shake, but for me, it's, it's, it's difficult to do. Now, when I say Anabaptists, I'm not talking about Baptists. I'm not talking about Southern Baptists. I'm not talking about any of the the Baptist uh, denominations around the world and in America. I'm talking about the beginning of all that stuff. Um, Baptists today, I mean, okay, I have a gripe with them that I'll get to from their founding. But... um, their founding was influenced by the Anabaptists. It's not that the Anabaptists changed or morphed or evolved into what we know today as the Baptist Church. They have a lot of ideas that are very similar. And maybe, maybe I should uh, say this just popped into my head. When I'm saying Anabaptist, I'm saying A-N-A. It means rebaptizer. And uh, and th- and that's another issue too, because Baptists are not rebaptizers. Even the Anabaptists um, of this time, they didn't consider themselves rebaptizers, because one of their characteristics, as you can tell by the name, was that they did not hold to infant baptism. We'll get into that a little bit uh, later on on the why, but I want to kind of talk about. Where they kind of come from, where we get these Anabaptists. Okay. Luther, after, you know, his old 95 thesis and everything that was going on there, um, he really opened the door. Like I said, with opening the door for um, Europe and for the Church of England and opening the door for uh, Zwingli and for the Humanists and for John Calvin He also opened the door for the Anabaptists. Now, the problem with the Anabaptists is that nobody really is sure exactly where the Anabaptists started. Um, Some of my history books say that, you know, more than likely, it was probably, it sprung from the many heretical movements of the 16th century. And I would agree. Now, when I say heretical, it's not that I'm saying that they're heretical. It's that the church was saying that they were heretical. In today's standard, um, even what the Anabaptists are doing uh, and what they wanted at this time, we would not consider heretical. But in the 16th century, you know, the 1520s, 1530s, 1540s, what they were doing was considered heretical. They had a lot of different ideas, but um, a lot of them were just, they weren't the Church of Rome, so they were considered heretical. Now, the way I've kind of always described it is that imagine you had a campfire, okay, and Martin Luther threw a cherry bomb into that campfire, And it exploded and just blew the campfire all over the campground. And it set little fires all over the place. Okay. All those little fires that went all over the place, that is what I would consider anabaptism. They didn't all agree. They didn't all have the same type of ideas. They had certain similarities, but not all. And if Luther was the cherry bomb in the fire, I would have to say that the mix of the humanists and scholastics and the Catholic Church with all of the problems that they were having and the battle cry, add fonts to the sources, it was just a perfect combination. It really was. And... Other people tried to get something like the Reformation going. Now, some people put the Anabaptists into the Reformation, okay? They say that the Anabaptists was like the Reformation movement, but they were like the Reformation of the Reformation, okay? They didn't think that they got far enough away from Rome, okay, or the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Practices, They wanted to get further away. Now, this is where, you know, words have meaning and where I always run into problems because when you're talking to different people, different terminology always comes up in the way that people are using it. Whenever whenever I think Reformed and I think Reformed theology, I think Luther, I know that Luther pejoratively, was called a Protestant because it means to protest. And so he was protesting the church, as it was said. But to be honest, he wasn't. He was trying to reform the church. He was trying to say that, no, the church has some things wrong, but we can fix it. We can make it better. We can keep going with it. He did not set out to start any type of new faith, new Christianity. It's just wasn't there. That's what reforming means. There's something that's formed and you're trying to reform it. Protestant, in my opinion, stands in direct opposition to what has already been formed. It is something new. It is protesting that thing and saying, no, that thing over there is wrong. We're not trying to change it. We are the remnant of it. We're the ones that are getting it right. We are protesting that in our actions and our theology and what we're doing. This is the title that I would give Zwingli and Calvin. Okay. The Anabaptists, I would give them the title of the Separatists. They were, in a way, like the Protestant version of monks of the monastic life. Okay. But they were doing it in community. Okay. So they could marry, uh, have children, um, you know, all that's I mean, they they weren't monastic in the way that the 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 Roman Catholic monks were, but they were monastic in a different way. But the similarities are very pious life, a life of rules, a life of orthopraxy, right practice. And if you remember from the other theology pits that we talked about, and these are way, way, way back early, when we talked about the different kinds of quote-unquote Christianities, like the Manichaeans that uh, St. Augustine was part of, And through their learning, they figured if you gained more knowledge, by gaining more knowledge, you'd be able to control the body. So they, through education, were trying to achieve this this perfection of piety, this this self-control. Monks at the time were living out the self-control without the education. Through all of history, we see that there are these small sects here and there that this is what they try to do. The Anabaptists are the Protestant version of that. Um, they wanted to be completely pure because they felt that that is the way to please God and your best chance of being saved. The way that Christians kind of thought about it, well, I shouldn't say Christian. I shouldn't say it like that because now I'm excluding them from, from being Christians. And I... I don't, I don't really want to do that, but uh, Puritans, piety, like that type of thing, like living, how should I say, trying to, to live right. You don't drink, you don't chew, and you don't go with girls who do. Now, usually the way things were happening within Christianity is that Christians would think that you, must, you have to understand first. And then you're able to obey. When we talked about faith, and we talked about the three parts of what made up our faith that we exercise, that it was made up of notitia, assensus, and fiducia. Notitia is the knowledge of something. Assensus is the assent to it. And the fiducia is the, the um, faith that you, the trust that you have in it. So, what we would say is that to have faith, you have all three elements of this, but you might not have them all to an equal degree. But you have to know something in order to have this faith, okay? And you have to agree somewhat to it and you have to trust in it. The Anabaptists did it the exact opposite, they would say, no. Obedience is what brings understanding. The, um, uh, what is, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember the, the Latin phrase, fides ut intelligam, you know, faith seeking understanding. Or uh, be uh, be credo, it's in telegom, uh, faith-seeking understanding. But um, I believe, you know, there's another one I'll say, I believe because it is absurd. People always put that belief first. By you saying that, no, I have to behave a certain way, and then I will get understanding. In my opinion, is contrary to all of scripture. I don't see any evidence that this is the way to do it. I don't see any of that that's the right way. You obviously have to know something, but they would say, "No, what you need to know." And this gets to be very legalistic. This is almost the textbook definition of a works-based salvation. In order for and, and it, but it's oh Jesus, it's almost worse than a a, a works-based salvation because it's it's like a worse a works based gnostic stoicism and if you remember the Stoics believed that you know you could become uh the the logicos the the wise man by by gaining this knowledge this this divine knowledge that that is you know how uh one, not necessarily could be saved, but that was the ultimate goal, the ultimate type of deification, of glory, of, of becoming the closest thing that they could possibly imagine to God-like, you know, at the time. The Gnostics held to having secret knowledge. These people are saying that this knowledge, through obedience, they can attain which then saves them. So we've gone from this idea of Martin Luther and we are justified by the faithfulness of God alone to more of a, of a, a, a Zwingli, an Erasmus, maybe even a Calvin, that you are justified by faith alone. But the emphasis is more on your faithfulness, leaning towards the predestination understanding that God has chosen you. And that's why you believe. To this other understanding that seems completely outside, completely backwards of those other views, those other understandings of, no, what we need is to be able to work in the way that God wants us to through obedience and that somehow that saves us. Hardly even really articulated, which is why I think when it comes to Anabaptism as a whole, um, most denominations today have taken what they consider to be the good parts of it and rejected the bad parts. Now, when I said that I think the writers of the Westminster Confession were, you know, first semester freshmen at a college, the Anabaptists are elementary school kids. These are people that they just got their hands on a Bible. Most notably, probably, and here's the thing. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I talked about um, Tinsdale Uh, But the Geneva Bible, first Bible in English. Luther's translation, just the New Testament. So you had a lot of these Germans that, or people that could speak German, read German, that just have the New Testament. Now, in order to get into this Anabaptist mindset, I would have to encourage you right now to forget every single theology pit that you've ever listened to. Forget all this history, forget all this learning, forget the richness of the liturgies, forget the creeds, forget the councils, forget all history, everything that we have talked about, 100%, get that out of your mind. And just pick up the New Testament and read it without having any real cultural context while you're reading it. And start looking at it, and we haven't been through hermeneutics yet, I haven't discussed that, but there's a certain one, it's, it's called Pesher, and it's where, when you read the Bible, that everything that you read applies directly to you. It's, it's written about you. It is for you. And it's a wooden, literal understanding. However you're interpreting it, however you're understanding it, that's the way it's to be understood, because it's the Word of God. When this sort of thing happens and go into YouTube and look for, you know, people that, uh, you know, will teach Bible honors, say that they're Christians and stuff. There are some whack jobs out there. Some people who they pick up the Bible and you can tell that they have no historical understanding. They have no methodology. They just pick it up and just read it. And Bible is just Bible. And that's just how it is. That's the Anabaptists. That's what they're doing. They are looking at it, and they hardly understand what they read. Now, the Anabaptists—they are known for, you know, a couple of things, not just the whole um, rebaptizer thing to baptize again. And they wouldn't even—that's pejorative to call them Anabaptists or rebaptizers. They. They wouldn't do that because they don't see the first baptism as legitimate because they don't understand covenantalism. They don't understand the covenant of circumcision in the Old Testament. They don't understand the history of the church. They just haven't studied it. And I know people are saying, well, what about Zwingli? What about, you know, Calvin? I mean, Zwingli kind of like set everything off. Like he started, it was his, you know, uh, his disciples that really got the ball moving with Anabaptism. Why why didn't they know that sort of thing? I mean, William Tinsdale, who produced the Geneva Bible, um, his argument was that the priests... Him being one, you know, he, he would look at it and read, you know, read the New Testament and be like, the priests are uneducated. They have no idea. I want to make it. I want to produce the Bible in the vernacular for everybody to be able to read so that even, you know, somebody plowing the field can be, you know, singing the Gospels so that, you know, a, a woman who is, you know, in the home baking bread, that, you know, she's able to meditate on the words of Christ. Okay? Okay. The clergy, as we learned at this time, they are not top biblical scholars. And these are the ones that are causing the problems. It's not like the Bible was translated. It was then, you know, flung out on the roads everywhere. I mean, books were still expensive. People still had there There's still a high illiteracy rate. You would have to be educated um, in order to read it. So it's it's these quote-unquote educated people, these educated priests that are getting a hold of these New Testaments, and they're reading it, and they're preaching on it, and they're teaching it, and they're teaching other people to read it, and people are reading it, and they are saying, huh, you know what? This doesn't look like what Christianity is. A lot of times, and you find this in churches like, like the Church of Christ, or maybe even the Disciples of Christ also, definitely Church of Christ, where... The the New Testament is prescriptive in the way that you should do church. And that's how the Anabaptists took it. This is an Anabaptist influence in the the Church of Christ here. And the Anabaptist influence was, you know, if it's not specifically prescribed in the Bible, then you can't do it. Where Luther said, no, if it's not specifically taught against you're allowed to do it, okay? You know, I mean, everything is allowable. Not everything is profitable, okay? All things are lawful. Not everything is profitable. St. Augustine said, love God and then do as you please. Because if you love God, you're not going to, you know, why not go out there and willfully sin and everything? You're going to want to please God. You'll be free to do whatever you want in that sense. So what the Anabaptists would do in this understanding, and I, my, my wife's family um, were uh, their Church of Christ. And when, she, when we got engaged, you know, I mean, her family was, was happy. Her mom wasn't so much um, Church of Christ, kind of got away from that. Very, very legalistic, hardcore legalistic, especially when it came to baptism. Um, but one of the things about the Church of Christ is that you do not sing in church with musical accompaniment. And when her grandmother, I remember when I first met her grandmother, she questioned me on that because her granddaughter just got engaged to a church musician. And where did I get off playing music for people to sing to in church? I mean, I was kind of struck, dumbfounded by it. I was like, what, are you serious? And I was like, she's like, you can't show me where that is in Scripture. I was like, well, in the Old Testament, they did all the time. I mean, the Psalms are written for the music director. Like, they would have all kinds of instruments that they would play and they would sing to and they would do that. And I was told, no, that's the Old Testament. Where in the New Testament do you see it? And I'm like, you got to be kidding me, right? You need to throw out all the Old Testament you just focus on the New Testament, and that's what I mean by getting into this mentality of, of you know, what the Anabaptists do. But they don't take it far enough because honestly, honestly, if you wanted to be completely consistent with this kind of thought, okay, show me. I, I mean, I could, I could go up to any of them and be like, would you please show me where in the New Testament it says the word Bible? Because it doesn't. It talks about scriptures. Where in the New Testament does it say that you are allowed to preach in English? Where does it say that? It doesn't say that anywhere. The New Testament, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of many others, is not prescriptively telling you how to do church. It is describing the way that they did church. And it was done, you know, in different ways that, you know, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was celebrated in what they did. And we talked about the liturgy coming out of those behaviors and those practices taken from the liturgy of the Old Testament. But just moved in to also tell the story of the New Testament. The two were, you know, a hybrid in that way. But the Anabaptists have no clue of that. They look at that and they say this stuff is unnecessary. Um, all the bells and smells, unnecessary. Uh, veneration of the saints, unnecessary. Statues, unnecessary. Um, uh, stained glass windows, unnecessary. Uh, everything that's going on uh, unnecessary to the point where you had some radical Anabaptists at the time that would go in and they would destroy relics. They would ransack things. And I mean, even like during mass run in, take over and like, you know, pull the bones of saints, uh, out of things, throw them on the ground and start stomping on them in front of people, just going crazy, just causing havoc. A place called Munster is where you know this. This in in Germany is where this was happening. Um, Luther was totally against this because they were like, "Come on, Luther, aren't you on your side?" He's like, "No, this is not my teaching. This is not what I'm what I'm talking about. What what are you doing? By putting the Bible in somebody's hands without explaining it to them and teaching them." how to read it and the historical grammatical literary hermeneutic and um, you know showing it. this is why we had so many problems you know back in the second century and the third century. All the problems that we have ever had heretically in the church has come from the Bible. It never came from anywhere outside. It came from people reading their Bibles unchristianly. Okay? This whole idea of the Anabaptists only focusing on the New Testament and what it says, that's it, that reeks of what Marcion did in the, um, uh, se- was the second century, I think, where um, uh, St. Irenaeus of Leon, France wrote against him because he was saying that no, the god of the New Testament is not the god of the Old Testament because he's very polluted with Gnostic thought as well. And he got rid of all the books of the Old Testament, kept only the book of luke edited from the new testament and some of paul's writings and that was it and you know look at what sprung from that it was people who were outside the teaching of the apostles looking at the bible and interpreting it wrongly and saying look i can you know, take this take this out of here i can do this the people of the time who were baptizing, and who still do today, baptizing infants, look at it in a covenantalist way, that God is making a covenant with that child in a body of believers, just like in circumcision, okay? In my Bible study, we are um, studying the book of Galatians, and right in the beginning, Paul talks about how he was saved, how he was chosen uh, from from birth, from from the beginning, from when he was very young. And I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to flip, flip, flip right to it so I can just read it exactly, because I know whenever I say stuff like that and kind of paraphrase it, I don't want people to think, what, he's not talking, that's not right. Um, okay, so, all right, I'm looking at, oh, that's Second Corinthians here, that is not going to help me. When I'm trying to find that, I need to get to Galatians. Well, Second Corinthians might help me, but not not for this um, for this uh, talk that I'm doing for this this point that I'm um, trying to make here. Um, I'm reading through right now. You know, I'm gonna hang on. Okay, here I am. Uh, chapter one, verse uh, fifteen. But when the one who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not go to ask advice from any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me. But right away, I departed to Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Um, I just finished out the thought there. Um, but it's verse 15 that... The one who set me apart from birth. How was Paul understanding that he was being set apart from birth? He was understanding that because of the circumcision, because of that covenant, that that idea. Now, it's funny they would miss that in Galatians, but you know what they would pick up on? That Paul's making the claim that, you know, he was not taught by anyone. That um, where'd it go? Ch-ch-ch-ch-ch. Called me by his grace, I could preach among... I did not go and ask uh, advice from any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem and see those who were apostles before me. Well, then where did he get his understanding from? Well, I mean, you have to know the background of Paul, of course. And, you know, Paul being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I think he's of the tribe of Benjamin, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Um, He was like, he was real hardcore. He knew his Old Testament, or what was just the scriptures at the time. And on the road to damascus in acts chapter 9 i believe it is he you know was blinded by the light and you know he was he was uh blind and then prayed for scales fell from his eyes and he stayed with the disciples for 3 days they probably told him about the story of christ about you know what happened what was going on then and that's where he got it from and you know we see that paul got his information from them, but what God gave him and what he received from God, the fullness of the gospel, is that Christ did it all, that we are justified because of the faithfulness of Christ, that Jesus is Yahweh, all these things. And there's another piece of evidence to this because God does not just speak to people about the gospel and about his will in the gospel. He does not do it directly as far as we see. And we'll talk about that right on the other side of this break. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. SamsonStick.com Thanks again. Now back to the show. Okay, so in the book of Acts, when you have Peter up on the Tanner's roof and he's praying, and the angel uh, appears to Cornelius, and... Cornelius is a God-fearer, and the angel tells him to send for Peter, so that Peter can come and deliver the gospel to them. The question is, why didn't the angel just tell him the gospel? Why didn't he tell Cornelius the gospel? I think the reason why is because the gospel is organic. It's from person to person. Much like how the effects of sin is, of original sin, it's from person to person. That has to be dealt with. So, the angel who knew the gospel didn't, an angel is messenger, okay, um, an evangelist, as it has the word angel in there, um, is, is a messenger from God. Why, didn't, why don't we have angels telling everybody the gospel? Why don't we have angels giving these private interpretations, giving, you know, all all these type things. So I don't think that Paul is saying that what was given to him by God, from God, was in this mystical kind of amorphic sense that he was just zapped with it one day. I think the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, used his education and used his background in order to... Bring these ideas together in him. I don't think it was a type of dictation uh, that was happening, but some Anabaptists actually thought that that's how it happened. They thought that, well, I don't need anyone because there are verses in Scripture that says, you know, they will be taught by God. Not thinking that that you know refers to. Christ, and you see that today, but that all right, I'm just gonna get it straight. And the story of Munzer or of Munster, I think that's how it's pronounced. There's different spellings for it. Um, you had this group of Anabaptists. Most Anabaptists were peaceful. Um, they were they were pacifists. That was something that identified them. Uh, they were they were peaceful. Uh, they believe very strongly in individual liberty. Uh, they believe strongly in separation of church and state. They formed what was called the free churches. They were free of uh, state control, free of any other uh, denomination. Um, and they rebaptized or did uh, what's called credo baptism. Rather than uh, Credo-baptism is believers' baptism. Paedobaptism is uh, infant baptizers, and they got this idea because they read their New Testament poorly. I'm a, I'm a, I'm throwing that in there. I know that sounds bad, but it's it's just it's so annoying when when people do this to the Word of God that it's just I'm I'm trying trying not to be you know so emotional about this, but. They poorly read their New Testament and they can't see where the evidence for infant baptism is. Because a lot of what they see is missionary baptism, believers' baptism. So that you would have to, you know, repent, confess your sins, proclaim Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then be baptized. In the view, this is what's called the Lordship Salvation view. Okay. So when it comes to the application of the atonement, this is a view that it works in with the governmental view. And I think we're going to spend um, next time talking a lot about the governmental view. And then we'll come back uh, to some of these stories. Because I, I, I debated on talking about the governmental view for this one. But I wanted to get the Anabaptists in because I wanted to get them in with the Calvinists and the, um, the Lutherans. We'll talk about the governmental view. And then we'll go to the Arminian view. And from there, uh, we'll look out at the way the other churches have um, looked at this, and we can kind of put them in in their categories on what exactly they mean that Christ died for you. But the Lordship Salvation View says that what you need to do is you need to repent of all of your sins, and repent means to turn away, confess your sins, repent of them, turn from them, and then accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And when you do this, then you will be made a child of God. But some put stipulations on it. But repent means you've turned away from them. If you go back to your sins, if you sin again, you're no longer saved. And I've heard pastors say from the pulpit, they say, I have to get saved every single day because they have no assurance of their salvation. The other side is the free grace view, that God freely gives his grace. So... With the Anabaptist understanding, um, you could see the importance that they wanted in a church-state separation, which sounds all well and good, until you give them these radical ideas that anybody can just read the New Testament and perfectly interpret it and get revelations from God. You tell a group of people that and someone stands up and says, you know what, God's speaking to me. Let me talk let me control things that's the story of munster in germany you have a group of anabaptists that eventually i want to say weasel their way into this town okay you have some of zwingli's students disciples followers and they are saying you know what end of the end, end of the world is nigh uh, the the uh, millennium is going to come. Christ is going to return. He's going to reign for a thousand years. We have to help usher this in. And, you know, the, the way that this is going to happen, we're not going to do it by force, but I'm telling you it's coming. And it's going to happen on this date. It's going to happen in uh, 1534. That's when it's going to happen. Because it was 1533 at the time when they were saying this. And uh if if you remember at the, at the time that this is going on um Zwingli let me look back at my notes from uh last week uh Zwingli died in 1531 and Calvin took over mm. in 1531 to 1564 and this is 1533 and they're looking at that and saying, "You know what? It's been 1500 years since uh the resurrection of Christ. He's definitely going to return. This is going to be the return date. This is when it's going to happen." And you know, it the Anabaptists were hated by everybody at this point. I mean, everybody is trying to put them to death because of what they're, what they're doing. I mean, it's one thing to go against the church, which is what a lot of people were doing. Okay. The reformers were, the Protestants were, but sedition is really what's getting them in trouble by saying we don't, we're not part of the state. We are separate from the state that is fighting the state that is going against the state that is trying to overthrow the state that is threatening the state rule. That's sedition. This is what was really getting them in trouble. This is why princes and um, governors and other leaders were hunting them down and getting rid of them. Well, this guy who was saying the end of the world is nigh, it's going to happen, you know, Easter on 1534 and it's going to happen you know, in this particular German town. So they all go to this particular German town, and of course they're arrested. Some are burned at the stake. Some are drowned. Uh, drowning was a, was a big thing with the Anabaptists because they called it the third baptism. They said, hey, if they want water so bad, fine, we'll give them some water. Uh, and so they would give them their third baptism, and they would drown them, usually tie them to a ladder, put them underwater for five or ten minutes, and then, then pull them up. But this guy, who was the leader of this, that was captured, he was then uh, put in a um, in a tower for the rest of his life, which was interesting. And the reason why I say it, it, it's weird that you know he was put in a tower for the rest of his life is because at this time, you know, this medieval uh, torture time, um, they executed people in a lot of different ways, horrible ways, awful ways, as as you know, we're going to see from this. Um, even uh, even in in Geneva, that uh, Calvin set up as like a theocracy there. Um, it you know they executed someone. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But so you know these these people who are these Anabaptists that went there for this. Um, you had some that they they didn't go, but they were I say quote unquote Lutheran. And there's a lot of names that sound the same you have um a couple Bernards and you have a couple uh john's um but basically what happened is they looked at the town of of Munster and they said the city is about a th- three three mile radius about three miles um uh, town and they said this is gonna be the perfect place this is where. Armageddon's going to happen. This is where it's it's going to take place, that Jesus is going to return and he's going to rule from here. So you had this guy who, you know, he's this Lutheran, quote-unquote, pastor, but he keeps slipping into his sermons all this Anabaptist theology. And he'd write him out, and his right-hand man there, who was on the town council at the time, kind of a bigwig, um, would published these, he had his own printing press, would publish these things and send them out. So he's sending them all out. And Munster was was an interesting town because it was half Catholic, half Lutheran. It was on the border, and the prince, he was a prince-bishop, he had his title from the Roman Catholic Church, and the um, council and the townspeople a lot of them were Lutheran. And they just kind of agreed, hey, you know, we'll just live together and we just get along. And they were actually kind of proud of that fact that, you know, the, the town was diverse, but they that they got along. It was a sense of pride. And anytime that there were any problems or anything like that um, that, that came up, they seemed to work it out. Like if the council was um, town council was very Lutheran and they passed some laws saying that, okay, well... You know, you're not allowed to, you know, do this certain thing um, that interfered with the uh, worship style of the Roman Catholics. And uh, The Roman Catholics would go and complain. We can't even, you know, worship because, you know, of, of this law. And then the prince would come in and they'd say no. And, like, you know, you can't make a law like that. You can't do it. So the peace kind of kept. But you have this guy that's going in there. And this guy's a jerk. Um, he's the one that's going in and like stomping on the relics and like breaking stuff and like doing all this. And, you know, this guy who is publishing, you know, publishing his stuff is keeping him out of the trouble, you know, cause they know that he's doing it, but you know, he, this guy can pretty much controls the council more or less. Like he's got a lot of influence. And so, you know, they won't get rid of him. It won't get rid of this, uh, this, this, this preacher. And so, You know, this guy just keeps doing it when things seem like they're going to die down a little bit. He goes and causes more trouble and it keeps going back and forth like this to the point where he actually has his own bodyguard as a point of them because they're afraid somebody's going to kill him because they just Catholics want to get rid of him. You know, he's causing these these problems and stuff from this literature that he's sending out, though, it's becoming more and more. Anabaptists-like. These these people who are, like, moderate Lutherans are becoming more and more Anabaptists. I mean, he would preach on the evils of infant baptism, uh, something that, you know, Lutherans hold to. So, you know, he would then put out a call, you know, at, the, at maybe the end of one of these sermon-type things or something, and um, pamphlets, and more and more Anabaptists started moving in. And they started, you know, uh, flooding in, And pretty soon it started changing the demographic of the town. And this is what happens whenever you allow people to immigrate without assimilating. So this town then gets more and more Anabaptists, okay? The town is now getting full of Anabaptists who are pretending to be Lutheran somewhat until this guy comes right out and says... I'm an Anabaptist. We're Anabaptists. We want there to be a, an election now. And they have another election. And now the council of the town, the town council, is Anabaptists and Lutheran, and the Catholics are kind of pushed out. Okay? And they just start moving really, really fast. They just make all sorts of things illegal, and they just start putting all these laws in. And within, like, one week... Um, 1,400 people are baptized in one week, rebaptized, And the people are just like, what's going on? Because in a town of maybe like 10,000, 10 or 12,000 people, to have 1,400 people in one week baptized is really, really significant, you know? And it's like you woke up one day and it's like, whoa, what's going on here? Okay? And so then, pretty soon, they decide that they're going to kick out All of the Lutherans or all of the uh, Catholics, they totally take it over. So they're completely taken over the town. The town has walls or siege. Like, it's just, it's a huge mess, you know? And this guy now starts to proclaim that he is talking to God, that he is a prophet of God, that God is speaking to him. And he has a flair for the theatrics And, you know, uh, he does this whole big thing Where they're, like, foaming at the mouth And, like, the speaking in tongues thing And they're saying that, you know, repent Repent now, the kingdom of heaven is nigh And all this stuff And people freaking out And they think that maybe he actually drugged the food Or the water system or something of the people Because the people start hallucinating And seeing visions and, like, those sort of things And, and that's totally possible It's, um, it's, it's referred to as St. Anthony's fire back at that time and it was like this type of a fungus that would grow on um rye that went bad and if you made bread out of it it would have like a hallucinogenic effects to it so it's totally possible and totally not past what these guys would do so this guy totally thinks that he's you know talking to god and stuff and not like not like you know I study scripture and god speaks to me but um Hey, uh, what, you have a question? Hang on, let me talk over my shoulder real quick. Hey, God, what do you think about that? Yeah. Okay, you know what? God agrees with you on that. Okay, God says that. Like, it's like a walkie-talkie to God is what this guy has, right? And he's, like, doing all this stuff, saying all this stuff. They eventually say, all right, that's it. We're kicking out all the Lutherans and all the Catholics. They're not allowed to be here anymore. And they go one morning and just, I mean, it's sleeting and snowing. I think it's in January. And they're just like, Get out. And leave all of your stuff behind. You take nothing with you. you don't you don't get anything. Another thing that the Anabaptists were really big on is um, communism. They were big communists. Um, and you get to see in this story, and I, I encourage you because I'm not going to be able to get through the whole story here, but to look the story up and to see like what happens and how communism plays out and it ends the exact same way communism always ends at the at the end of a gun. I mean that's just how it happens for the people and for for them. So this guy, um, you know, he's seeing all these visions, like blah, 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 you know, uh, holding off, you know, the the prince is, wants to take his town back, but he doesn't know quite how to do it. And, you know, he's waiting for um, arms and things to come from other dukes and, and other princes that are like sending him cannons and reinforcements and all this stuff to, you know sees all this and everything, and this guy is, like, sending out, sneaking out literature, telling all the Anabaptists, every Anabaptist, come to Munster, every Anabaptist, get down here, and, you know, Jesus is going to return, and we're going to reign for a thousand years, and Armageddon's going to come, and, like, you know, all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, the people are getting restless, and, you know, I mean, all this stuff happens, I mean, it's so detailed of, of what's going on, but basically, he says, okay, you people don't, believe me with a lot of this stuff of like what's going on or some people didn't like there was a blacksmith who was on, um, uh, guard duty one night, whispered something about like, uh, about the poop prophet, but he uses a different word than poop, a a more vulgar word. And it gets back to him and he just goes into like a, a fit and has the guy, you know, arrested in chains in front of him the next day. And he's like, here's somebody who, you know, doubts the prophet and doubts the one who is speaking to God. And, and, um, you know, he, because of this, and he gives like this big elaborate speech and that, you know, he's like, this is like a cancer festering in our Puritan land that you know, we are like, we are the new Jerusalem and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And we can't let this, this, you know, disease like remain here. And the people start, It starts clicking with them. He's going to kill this guy. He's totally going to kill him right now. And the the councilmen, like, step up and say, hey, wait a second. You can't do that. We have laws. He has to go through a trial. You can't be judge, jury, and executioner. And this dude just goes into a spastic fit and just, you know, just like all like totalitarians do. And, you know, he just throws this big fit And either him or somebody. Um, grabs a uh, you know a type of spear and stabs this guy in the back right between his shoulder blades and the guy falls down and is, he's already down but he falls on his face and screaming in pain because he's a blacksmith he's a pretty big guy anyways and now he's you know he's stabbed in the back and he's screaming so the guy. Um, you know who who is the prophet? Grabs a, uh, a pistol, shoots him in the head. It still doesn't kill him. Now he's lying there, having been shot, screaming and doing all this. And the people are just like stunned. They're like, "What's going on here?" Because it's a small community. Everybody knows everybody. They know this blacksmith. They know who this guy is. You know, and they eventually like crowd around him and they they take him up to a house and they put him in a bed and he dies there three days or eight days later. Um, but this, this guy guys pretty much like, all right, that's it. You know what? You people, we, we seem to have issues. Anybody who wasn't a believer, and one of the things before they kicked all the, um, the Lutherans and the Catholics out, one thing that they said that you could do is if you converted and were baptized— to the Anabaptist belief, then you were allowed to stay and keep your stuff. But it was going to be confiscated anyways because we all live in a commune. Um, He said, if you weren't converted by this day, then you have to go into the cathedral, men, women, and children. And I'm going to talk to God to find out whether or not to put you to death. And these people are all rounded up and they're put in this cathedral and they're in there for a couple hours just sweating it out because they're like, this guy's insane. Look at what he just did, you know? And so, you know, he then goes into the cathedral with a bunch of armed men, and these people that are in there are, like, crawling on their faces towards him, saying, please, you know, speak to the Father on our behalf, ask for mercy, and and he's like, all right, hang on a second. Okay, you know what, God says is you guys can live. So now, like, nobody's going to be talking back to this guy, right? So he says, you know, okay, well, you don't believe me, like, blah, 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 like, he gets this, he goes in the, what might be an epileptic seizure, like, all this stuff, and he says, okay... I'm going to go out and I will, you know, destroy the, um, the prince. And the reason why I, I know this is because, you know, I've sent out all these pamphlets and there's going to be like thousands of Anabaptists coming this way. And I told them, bring nothing but weapons, you know, your arms. So like thousands of armed Anabaptists are like going through the countryside, really easy to spot. They are captured, killed or sent back by the different princes and stuff like that. They're never arriving. All right, once he figures out they're never arriving, he says, all right, well, then I'm going to go out and, I'm, um, you know, I am going to uh, defeat the prince. So him and 10 soldiers leave and go out, and the prince sees him coming out, and they see, like, this small band. And they're like, is this a group of people who are coming to, uh, like, negotiate or something? Like, what is this that we're seeing? And they see that they're, no, they're looking for a fight. So the prince sends down 500 Armed cavalry, and they go and just mow these guys down, just kill them. This prophet, this quote-unquote prophet that was there, you know, he gets stabbed and and run through, and um, you know, his intestines are yanked out, and they just chop him up into pieces, put his head on a spike outside the uh, uh, the 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 walls of Munster for them all to see, and nail his genitals to the to one of the doors there. As this, see what happens? Do you see what happens when you do this? So now people are like. What just happened? I mean, this guy was a prophet. This guy spoke to God. This guy did this. Like, I don't know what's going on. Well, later that night, his second in command, um, who has a flair for the theatrics, decides that he's going to take over. And he successfully does it. And this is the type of guy who, you know, he, he says to them, yes, you know what? God spoke to me in a dream and told me that this was going to happen because, you know, he should have went out by himself, but he took those 10 guys with him and God didn't tell him to do that. And he was trying to get glory for himself. And God obviously said that was wrong. And he told me and God told me this in a dream eight days ago. And everyone's like, oh, what? And he's like, he's like, I know, right? Like, oh my goodness. I was shocked about it myself. So, you know what? I went and told, you know, this guy who, you know, voted for, he's the head of the council and everything. I told him when it happened. And he steps up and says, yep, he's right. He told me eight days ago. It really rings of the whole Joseph Smith Mormon thing, if you've ever studied that. It really sounds like like that. And the, um, you know, the magic spectacles to read the golden uh, plates with the neo hieroglyphics on it and, you know, all that stuff. But it's, it's, Like the same thing, but this is the type of guy who, when he speaks to God, it's just like, um, you know, he's hungry for a loaf of bread, doesn't have any money, and he's just like, um, hey, uh, God told me he wants you to uh, give me that loaf of bread for free. All right, thank you very much. All right, so he's like taken over and he's kind of a charlatan, he really is. And so, what you know, he does is it, things just get worse and worse and worse under his control. People are starving, but of course he and his like inner circle decide that, no, um, they're the ones that should have the food and they'll dish it out as needed. But of course they're the ones only eating where, you know, the people are eating like their shoelaces and stuff. He's all like, okay. Um, you know, everyone has to conform and you know, we got to make sure that like, you know, stuff like this doesn't happen again because we are God's chosen people. And so, you know, um, um, yeah, nobody's allowed to have a door on their house anymore. It always has to be open so that we can go in and do inspections whenever, whenever we need, whenever we want. And they just go in and ransack people's houses and, you know, all these problems and stuff. And one of the things that happened way in the beginning is these Anabaptists, these early Anabaptists, would go and preach to the nuns, hey, God doesn't want you to be a nun anymore. He wants you to you know, be fruitful and multiply. And so they're like, yay, okay, we're going to stop being nuns. And they throw off their habits and you know, they go to Munster. But the problem is, is that there aren't enough men for the women. There's about three women to every man. And so they're like, hey, you told us to come here. There's no men like, you know, what are we supposed to do? They, they're they thinking about leaving, but they don't, they, you know, they, they might sneak out. But where do they go? Like, what do they do? They've kind of abandoned everything and all this stuff. And people are starting to grumble and it's starting to get bad. So this guy's all like, oh, OK, you know what? Um, God told me that he's going to reinstate polygamy and you will start calling me King David. And I will have many wives and everybody has to have a wife. And it's now it's now a, a, a law that a man has to be married to many wives. And even if the man doesn't want to, it doesn't matter. He has to be married to her. And they would go into people's houses and they would, you know, see, okay, well, we think that this girl who's 11 year old is of age. So we're going to marry her to, you know, a man old enough to be her grandfather. Okay, there you go. And they're just like doing all this crazy stuff and all this like polygamous, like crazy, insane type things are going on. This is the Baptist. These are the people who sowed the ideas for the, the Amish for the Brethren movement for any of the most pious you know people in the world the the puritans okay you know when you think of like puritans and you think of fundamentalists and you think of like the ned flanders type the people that's them that's the ones that are told that they need to be uh polygamous okay and someone uh defined polygamy or not, not polygamy, but design uh, defined uh, piety in the, in the way that I I just had it here in front of me I can't find it right now, but it's the um, piety is the fear that someone somewhere may be having fun. So when you contrast that with what's going on now, even these people are like, what's going on? This is crazy. Okay. So you have like, I mean, all these different things happen. Long story short, um, the Prince eventually invades, takes over the, takes over the town. You know, a bunch of people get killed. It's a big, you know, big battle, big war, you know, kind of goes on and stuff. And this is on the heels of the, um, uh, the, uh, revolt of the, of the, of the people, the, the name is escaping me right now, but the um, uh, you know the, the the subjects like their their rebellion from earlier, um, and it's, it's you know kind of looking at that people don't want another one of those, and so what he does is he captures these these guys the three main you know ringleaders, and he um, he executes them does a public execution with them, and he has a stake that's you know in the in the middle of town they probably put together like you know some some horse carts or something put the stake in there and they chained all three of them up to the stake okay and they you know had them chained by their necks with um you know spikes on the inside to make them stand there and they took um you know their what the the way that they executed them was that they had to suffer for 1 hour before they were to be mercifully Uh, Killed to have a dagger stabbed in their heart. So what they did is they had these red hot tongs and red hot pokers and that sort of thing. And they had all three men tied to this post back to back to back. And so they could see or they could hear and smell and feel the vibrations of the other ones being tortured to death. So the first one, they they took these red-hot tongs and under the armpit, they would put them on and as soon as the tongs touched their skin, their skin would just start burning. It would just burst into flames and they're pulling down and they're just filleting them and they're pulling out muscle and nerve endings and everything. And if you and the people, if they passed out, then they waited and they were revived. And that time that they were passed out did not count towards their time of of, uh, uh, torture. Okay. It had to be 60 minutes. Exactly. One hour. Exactly. So if you passed out, the clock stopped, you had to be revived, keep going through it. And this happened to all three of them. And then they were, you know, first one, second one, third one. So how terrifying must it have been to be the third one. I mean, uh, uh, but then have the knife, like, yeah. you know, put in them and they were killed. And then they were put in these things that are sort of like metal bird cages that were um, in the way they're more like phone booths, I guess, uh, you know, that were like phone booth looking cages. Their bodies were put in there and then they were hung um, up high on the cathedral for everyone to see. And that's where they are to this day. Um, on the website here at samsonstick.com, I will put up a picture that's there of these cages that are still there today. A lot of people say that these are the replicas that are up right now, that the actual ones are in a museum down there, but that's what happened. So these Anabaptists had these crazy ideas and then, you know, they, they have no foundation and this is what happens when you have zero foundation. You do these things, the way the Baptists started, I found it equal equally as, you know, interesting because the way that um, the whole thing with the with the Baptists were going, I mean, the Baptist Foundation, I, I should say, uh, John Smith or John Smyth, S S M Y T H. The way he started up is that he would read his Bible and say, oh, I don't see anything about baptizing infants in here. So, you know, he does. He baptizes himself and then 40 other members of his congregation. Uh, by pouring, and that was in the year uh, 1609 that that got going. And I've always wondered, like, okay, you don't see any evidence of infant baptism, but gee, self baptism, yeah, that's all over the New Testament. Okay, yeah, good one. Sorry, you hear the snarkiness in my voice, but I'm not buying it. Okay, this is obviously what happens whenever you devoid yourself from uh, the, the 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 Christian teaching, and this is what happens. When you're in that line that goes from the Stoics through the Gnostics, through the the Manichians, you know, through Pelagius, and then through the Scholastics and through the um, Humanists, and then you totally ignore all of church history and everything and say, no, we're just going to do Bible and that's it. And these are the problems that you get. And there's so much more that I want to cover. I don't even know if I did a good job, but the whole thing of the application of the atonement, I think it went backwards and it actually went cattywampus. Uh, when it comes to the Anabaptists, because you can at least see a logical progression in all the other ones, this one is way out in left field, and we're going to talk about the influence that it had, the governmentalist view, and we might get into more of the the Baptists and the Amish and the Mennonites and the Brethren movement and the uh, Evangelical Free Churches and and those sort of things like later on. But like I said from uh, before. I'm not saying that your denomination is this, and I'm not saying that you are this. I'm just saying when it comes to your beliefs and when it comes to your doctrines, recognize the company that you keep. And in this case, I think that this is some of the worst accompaniment. And and to be honest, some of the denominations that have come from this tradition are some of the most uneducated traditions I have ever met in my entire life, and I've even been part of them. Hey, that's the music going. You can hear it. Um, I hope you've been enjoying the Theology Pit. Please visit me, uh, Samson at SamsonSick, St- or samsonsick.com. Email me, Samson at or visit me on Facebook at The Theology Pit. And now it is definitely time to close down the pit.